There's a phrase that Jesus uses in so many of his miracles. It, it comes again and again. What he says is, you have no faith. Why do you doubt? I mean, he'll say it again and again, usually in connection with a miracle. And so I would read it, and I would think that, well, I think what he's looking for is he's looking for faith to believe that Jesus can do miracles. Well, of course, Jesus can do miracles. Faith is more than that. Well, maybe he means that faith is that he will do a miracle in my life. Of course, he can, and he sometimes will, but it, it means more than that. What we're learning is that faith is the capacity to look through a miracle at what God is doing in the world even when it seems like he's doing nothing. So what we found is that miracles are really signs, and signs are mysteries. And mysteries are not things that you can't understand. They are things through which you understand all things. So the point is never to stand outside of a miracle or a sign and try to study it and figure out what happened in that miracle. The point is to get into the miracle and look out of it at the rest of life, even at things that don't seem that miraculous, and ask yourself, how does what is happening in this miracle Tell me what God is doing in the world. Because miracles are windows into the divine activity. What this means is, am I going too fast? Good. What this means is that the most important faculty that we use in studying miracles is not the reason or the intellect. It's the imagination. Imagination is not the capacity to stand outside and drum up things that aren't true. It's the capacity to enter into things that are true and look through those things at other things. This has been the problem with miracles in the past, as I understood it. Liberals and conservatives have fought for years over whether miracles actually happened. So the liberal mind stands outside of the miracle trying to understand the world using his intellect and when he sees a bunch of events that aren't consistent with the world he understands, he tells himself intellectually that the miracle is unscientific and therefore it never really happened, whereas the conservative wanting not to lose his ground stands outside the miracle using his reason trying to prove that the miracle did in fact happen but at the end of the day both of them lose if the conservative wins the argument then all he has is a misty hope that what Jesus did once he will do again and he'll do it to me so he used to multiply fish and loaves so maybe he'll multiply my salary <laughs> maybe he'll put food on my table that comes from nowhere but either way, he's looking for an exact replica of what Jesus did in that moment. And he hopes he will do it again. Whereas the liberal has convinced himself that because the miracle is unscientific, that it didn't really happen, so he can't hope at all. Because miracles are based on the premise that God is active in this world. 
Nod your head or something. That's true. That's true. What is at stake is not whether he turned water into wine. What is at stake is whether there is a power outside of us, whether the heavens are open, whether he can do anything extraordinary. So what we're doing in this study of miracles is trying to get inside of them and then to look out of them and say, how do these miracles teach me about the way God acts upon this world? October 30th, 1991, six men aboard a boat called the Andrea Gale. They head out to the North Atlantic. They'll spend a few days fishing. They didn't make it. What is now known as the famous Nor'easter of 1991, it was a hurricane that came in off the Atlantic and started in New Brunswick and went all the way down to Florida and wiped out the entire East Coast, billions of dollars worth of damage. The fishermen themselves found themselves in the teeth of it. They found waves that were 40 feet high. Some of the buoys that were out in the ocean at that time were recording waves almost 100 feet high. So you think of a 40-foot wave about the height of the science hall building right behind us, a wave that big coming at you. The first one wiped two fishermen off the deck of the boat. They were never heard from again. A few moments later, another one just like it completely capsized the boat, and then another one just like it smattered the boat into pieces and took boat and four fishermen down to the bottom of the sea. It became known as the perfect storm. The phrase was first coined by the Port Arthur News, who reported that there were up to seven different forces converging at just the right time in the perfect sequence to create the perfect storm. So the perfect storm became a colloquialism for the convergence of forces beyond your control that suddenly throw everything in your life into chaos. It's things, one more time, that you can't control. And they happen in just the right sequence and they upend everything that you once stood for. So, it's hearing that you have cancer. It's losing a job suddenly without warning for reasons that you can't figure out. It's hearing that your spouse is having an affair or that he wants a divorce. It's being pulled into a scandal that involves your reputation and you weren't even aware that there was a scandal. Now you will spend the rest of your life, it seems, trying to defend your entire body of work over something you didn't know existed. It's a natural disaster. It's a fire. It's something that takes out everything that belongs to you. It's, it's beyond your control. The ancients used to take this uh, this idea that life 
was random and unpredictable, that chaos could come out of nowhere and suddenly throw everything you were into a turmoil, they, they centered this idea of chaos in the sea. Because the sea for them was a deep and mysterious, wild and destructive place. When you were in it, you were never standing on anything. And everything around you was moving. And the currents could come suddenly out of nowhere. And they pretty much can do with you anything they want. It doesn't matter how good you can swim or what kind of watercraft you have. When you're on the sea, you know in a moment that as fun and friendly as it seems, you better be careful, because this thing can get angry fast and before you can get out of it. They, they called him the sea monster. I'm not making this up. Ancients believed in something like a sea monster. Not like the Loch Ness, but they actually had names for it. In the book of Job, which is the oldest book in the Old Testament, they called the sea Rahab. They called it Leviathan. They called it the great dragon. And what they meant was it is unpredictable and it can cause a lot of destruction. Now, I don't think that they actually believed in a monster that lived in the sea, but they believed in the power of chaos. They believed that chaos was one of the forces that determined the outcome of things. They thought that God was involved in a cosmic struggle against chaos. When our kids were small, they believed in the boogeyman. And we would go through the rituals of, come in here, I heard him, he's under my bed. And I would go in, I'd look under the bed, I'd look in the closet, I would check the locks on the windows. And uh, they would say, well, he doesn't need a window. You can't see him. He doesn't make any noise. And I would say, <laughs> that's illogical. I remember saying, what is the difference between a boogeyman, honey, who doesn't make any noise, doesn't use windows, and you can't see, and no boogeyman at all? And I would get this blank look like, yeah, well, he's in here. <laughs> you can't talk to this. So I would go out in the living room, and I would say, we got to stop letting these kids watch movies. Why? Well, because they're projecting the stuff on movies into their little minds and they think that some configuration of four movies is under their bed. Lori would go, what movies? I mean cartoons. We have to stop letting them watch. Well, she would say, what cartoons? And then one day it occurred to me, they only come out at night, never in the day. And then I started to wonder, maybe children are not drawing 
on things that they have seen on television, maybe they are simply personifying what they know instinctively is true. I am a small person, and the world is a big place, and things unpredictable can happen, and they can happen fast, and I have no control over those things. And so at the end of the day, just before I fall off to sleep, when I am the most vulnerable as I have been all day, I hear them. Maybe they don't believe in boogeymen. Maybe they believe in chaos, and they call it the boogeyman. And maybe they are right. You see, I think in North America, we have convinced ourselves that because we can predict things, or we can explain things, or we can safeguard ourselves against things, we are safe from chaos. And maybe we are wrong. Maybe the ancients, maybe our children are right. Things can happen fast with no explanation. And the only thing you can do is try to survive. You never beat it. You just survive. And then you take what is left of your life and you try to move on. That is the perfect storm. So with that backdrop, I want to introduce you to two miracles in the Bible, both of them involving the sea. Both of them involving the disciples with Jesus. Both of them involve a miracle. But I'm going to contrast them. It's not going to take long. Relax. Uh, Because I think they say two different things. And I think we sometimes get stuck in one and we're not ready for the other. Let me tell the first one really fast. I'll tell the second one really fast and then I'll draw some contrasts. What I've done to help you is every time I see the words waves or winds, I've taken the word out of the text and I've put the word chaos. Because when I inserted the word chaos, the text just went for me. Here's the first one. It's in Matthew chapter 8. It says that the disciples followed Jesus into the boat. So they're all together inside the boat. And suddenly, without warning, there it is. A furious storm came up on the lake. So that chaos swept over the boat. But Jesus was sleeping. Great. So the disciples now are straining at the oars. They're using every skill they've learned, every muscle in their body to try to stabilize the only thing that will keep them safe. You don't beat storms. You survive them, and you survive them in boats. And when it occurs that they are not going to do well, one of the disciples goes down to the bottom of the boat, and he wakes Jesus up. Have you ever wanted to do that? Jesus, I believe in you. I just think you're sleeping. And in Mark, what they say to Jesus is, don't you care that we're about to drown here? And that's when Jesus says, ah, you have little faith. Why do you doubt? And then the most amazing thing happens. He steps to the front of the boat and he looks to the winds 
and he says, quiet. And it is quiet. And then he looks out over the chaos, all the movement, the unfair, that's not right, I can't control this. He looks at the chaos and he just says, be still, and bam, it stops in a moment. And that's when it occurs to you that there are times when you're using all of your strength and energy just to stay alive and you're not going to make it. And if Jesus does not do something to control the elements themselves, this is what is striking about the first miracle. He doesn't speak so much to the disciples. He speaks to the elements and he tells the elements to stop. Have you ever just wanted to say, tell the elements to stop? Now, I can't do this. And sometimes he does. It's the most, you guys in my life, I have become so familiar with storms that I know how they work and I know how to play them. I know how to stay alive most of the time. And so whenever I call out for help, I am always asking Jesus to work within my boundaries. I know what I can do, and I know what you can do. We are both subject to the storm here, so I'm asking you for a, wait for it, little help. And he just goes, quit it. And it stops. And from this day forward, I have no trouble believing that Jesus can do anything. Some of you have already lost hope on that. Because like me, you think you know how things work. And you think that Jesus is as subject to the elements as you are. And sometimes you forget, what kind of man is this? Even the chaos answers to him. So this morning, what you need to do is believe again. And I mean believe outside of your narrow little path of how you know things work. Just ask God to do the inexplicable. And just say, I won't even try to figure it out. Which leads to the second miracle. It's like the first, only different. <laughs> in this one, in Matthew chapter 14, Jesus is finishing feeding the 5,000. When he's done, he says to the disciples, you guys get in the boat and start going across the ocean or the sea, and I'm going up on the mountain to pray. <laughs> now, don't miss this because the text is very clear that when they were in the boat, they were, quote, a considerable distance from the land where he was. So the picture you get in the second miracle is that Jesus' disciples are over here doing what he told them to do, but Jesus himself is up on a mountain praying. How nice. Now he's not sleeping. Now he's having a prayer meeting. While his disciples in the boat 
suddenly are overcome by chaos. Furious winds come out of nowhere and they start to overturn the boat. The text literally says there was a considerable distance and they were buffeted by the destruction because the chaos was against the boat. Suddenly, while they're straining at the oars again, they look in the distance and here comes Jesus. Only now he is walking on the water. And most people, when they look at this, they try to prove that Jesus can actually walk on the water. This isn't a miracle. If Jesus can't walk on water, he's not who he said he was. Of course he can walk on water. What I don't understand is why is he walking into the storm? Why does he not stand off to the side like every other deity in his day and from the shore just say, quit it and the storm will calm? We know he can do this because he did it in Matthew 8 when he stood in the boat. Why does he not do it again now that we all have our hopes up? Why does he come walking out on the water. They are shocked by this and they're still screaming and all of a sudden they hear a familiar voice and it says to them, take courage, it is I. Only that's a bad translation. It sounds like he's saying, it's me. <laughs> that's not what he's saying. What he's literally saying in the Greek is, take courage, I am. And he's using the same language that Moses heard on Sinai. Whom shall I say sent me? This is whom you should say sent you. I am that I am. When they ask what my name is, tell them the I am has sent me to you. Jesus lifting that phrase, standing in the midst of a storm, says to his disciples, take courage, I am. Be strong. If you're a disciple, you want to say, if you want me to be strong, you got to do something to this storm. But he won't do it. He just stands there and the chaos is blowing all over him and he's walking on top of the chaos. And then an unthinkable thing happens. Peter, peering out over the edge of the boat, his only hope of being alive, sees the shadowy figure of Jesus and he says, if it's really you, tell me to come to you. And Jesus just goes, come. <laughs> no. So Peter, only he can do this, he climbs out over the boat and the dude starts walking on top of the water. Now, now this is remarkable because, I mean, in the Old Testament, only God could calm the storm. But in the New Testament, when Jesus did it, they discovered, oh, he must be God. But now we have Peter doing what only God could do. But don't miss the text. What the text said, listen for it. He walks toward him. on the water. The key 
in the midst of a storm is to remember that Jesus is comfortable there, even if you're not. And the way to walk on water is to ignore the water and to walk toward him. See, you start thinking about all that you're risking, and you'll start sinking. But if you keep your eyes focused on, listen, and you take one step of obedience after another, you'll be surprised what you can walk through. You'll be walking to him. Oh, and did I mention you'll walk on water? So what is, what is the point of the stories? Well, one is I think we have to be careful to discern which miracle we are in. Here's what I do. I, I'm, I'm, this is me talking, not text. I start by asking God for the first miracle. When there is chaos in my life, I wake him up. And I say, I need you to do something that only you can do. And by the way, there's a whole bunch of other people need you to do the same thing. God, the body is full of skeptics, man. You could win a lot right now if you do this. I try to talk them into it. I do. And I am not shy about that. Because again, I, I'm not cocky. I start with the assumption that he can do anything and that he loves to be with his people. I, I, I start with that assumption, okay? He has a powerful instinct to want to protect me. Somebody, some good theologian burned that into my brain and I can't let go of it. He wants life to go well for me. And so I say, God, just do something crazy right now. And if it does not happen, then I start to believe I'm in the second miracle. If you keep believing in the first miracle, when it is obvious you are in the second, it's going to hurt you. You're going to keep looking for all of the circumstances to change and you'll miss him when he is walking towards you in the middle of your circumstances. So at some point, you just have to say what Pam said a moment ago. Hebrews said that we will walk by faith. This is a different life for me. And I'm not going to have maybe the healing I prayed for a while ago. So we start where we are. And I will find God in the wreck. So you look for him. You start looking for him. And you guys, I have no way to tell you. I have nowhere to tell you to look except the only place I know to look for his presence in chaos is in the body of Christ. Because I don't believe the church is simply a mouthpiece for Jesus. I believe the church is the physical presence of Jesus in this world today. So I believe that pretty much most everything he wants to do in the world today, he will do through the body of Christ. So that's where I start looking. I don't know where else to look. I'm in the waiting room of the emergency room 
some years ago, there's been a tragedy in a family of someone in our church. And while we're sitting in the waiting room waiting for the news to come from the back, the man looks to me and he says what every Christian has said at one point or another. He says, where was God when all of this happened? I never know what to say when this, you know, they send you to school to say, so so you know what to say, but you never know what to say. And so I said a profound thing. I said, I don't know. But maybe, I said, maybe we should stop looking for where God was yesterday and start looking for where he's going to be tomorrow. I mean, quit trying to figure out where he was in the storm and start looking for him in the future Don't judge him by what just happened. Judge him by what happens next. He says, how are we going to do that? I said, I don't know. It's it's the body of Christ. I just think it's the body of Christ. I said, I I don't know how, but the body is going to step up and they will take care of you. And I remember leaving the emergency room that morning. (laughs) I had a conversation with God in the car and I said, I think I just outkicked my coverage. You can't let us down now. You've got to call your body. Within 48 hours, somebody had already made it. They'd already heard about it, and and they called, and they said, if you come, we will give you free counseling for as long as you take. Someone else called and said, we'll take care of your children. Someone else called and said... You can find a place outside of the state and you can stay there for as long as you want. Someone else called and said, we'll bring you meals or any kind of medical supplies you need. Someone else called and said, if you want to relocate from your house, we'll buy it from you. And someone else called and said, if you want to find another place to live in, we will help you move in that place. Where is God? There he is. There he is. There he is. What do you need to see to part every time? Before you believe God is alive and active, walking to you in the storm? Do you realize by waiting for him to calm the storm, you sometimes miss his presence in the storm? So pray hard that he does the first. And if he does not, cling in the second to the physical manifestation of Jesus Christ in the world today, the body of Christ. Believe that. Didn't always. You taught me that. You taught me that. And then maybe, once in a while, the unthinkable will happen. In the midst of your storm, you'll say, if that's really you, dare me. (laughs) And Jesus will say, come, which is Greek for I dare you. You'll step out of the only security you ever had. And you'll walk right at him. Don't you ever 
take your eyes off of him. Ever. Ever. Look at him. And as one act of obedience, small as it seems, leads to another, you'd be surprised what you can do.